welcome to Here's the Thread. My name is Ala Jolly. And I'm the Luz. We're recording this episode on November 30th, 2021. Here's the Thread is about two immigrants who weave the thread through books, ideas, articles, and political movements to talk about what it might take to stitch divided communities together to fight for common causes. And today we're diving into part four of Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, and the title is The Tentacles of Cast. Awesome. So, Cleven, it's been a hot minute since we've recorded. It's been several months, in fact, but we're keeping at it. So how are you doing? What's What's been happening to you or, or us for the past couple of months? Well, you know, it's been, it's been pretty crazy. Um... I'm, I got back into school to finish my degree and I've changed my majors to, uh, be an English major. And I've also had some time to kind of think about what I want to do with my future. And it's looking like I'm very interested in health policy. So I've been doing that and, uh, you know, it's been busy trying to keep up with school. Um, how about you, Allah? What's been going on with you for the past three months? I don't think I remember the past three months. <laughs> I think I can really distinguish one week from another, let alone like one day from another. Like that's, I don't think that's possible. Um, but I think more broadly, I've been sort of getting out of a, a phase of transition. I moved a couple of times and then I was um, in a job and then I transitioned into being in a contract in contract work and then trying to get my life in order so now I'm starting to feel a little bit more of a routine which I like um, but other than that um, it's been you know similar to how I think everyone's life is in the pandemic it's sort of just one day blurs into the end into the next year so that's where we are yeah, I think this like kind of quote unquote recovery period has been uh, it, it's hard to adjust, you know, considering like in, in our age group, most people are like just graduating college and then they get hit with this kind of thing. And now it's like it, it, it wasn't just there were no jobs, there was nothing to do. Like, <laughs> so yeah i mean it's like, like it's like whoever graduated and what was it, like 08 or 09 it's like i'll raise you one <laughs> not that there aren't enough jobs that there are no jobs at all <laughs> <laughs> yup but hey both adjusting both making it through yeah and we're still trying which is why we're recording episode four because we we believe in what we're talking about we believe in in trying to to stay on it and try to keep learning see what's what we can possibly do even through all the chaos exactly exactly so Cleveland do you want to give us like maybe a little bit of context for for part four or sort or maybe generally where we are in in the book so we can get into to some of the some of the details maybe of of what she talks about in her argument here oh yeah definitely so I mean in part four, a majority of it is kind of talking about the overall oppression that people of color feel in uh, 
a caste society or like those in the minority in the caste or like at the lowest level of caste are heavily oppressed and the way that this oppression is able to continue is through manipulation at the very top and it allows the people at the very top to stay in power whereas the people at the bottom are made to think that they are enemies with each other in order to not be able to unite and have an idea of like oh there's actually a greater kind of evil that looks over us so wilkerson just dives into like a lot of ideas such as scapegoating um some of the rights that are like withheld from people without them even knowing or like just not educated enough to understand that they have more kind of say in things yeah i think your sort of bottom up um visual is really was really helpful because that's what how i was thinking about it when i was reading because i remember thinking about like a multiple story house Mm -hmm. every time she would talk about different groups like whether the dominant group the group general middle or the group at the bottom i kept thinking about like basement and then you know the super the Mm -hmm. area with a nice view and everything and then you would get basement and then like maybe there would be people below the basement yes Um, there's some exciting things happening where you are um, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. There's <laughs> multiple sirens always going off here. That's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think I think that like top down thing was something that I was thinking about. And it was helpful for me, because I kept thinking about if different populations are automatically placed into the hierarchy. And if your whole like job in your life was to get up the ladder and we're and we don't necessarily mean it's got to do with with race specifically but all the other social determinants of health that are associated with race right like mm-hmm. healthcare, access to fruits and vegetables education all of that is connected with um with your ethnicity um and the caste that you belong to in the united states and if you're trying to get out of your strata if you will everyone that you're around is conditioned to enforce the system, including people that are struggling for the same reasons you are. And so any effort to climb out of that strata is not just pushed down by the people up above, of course, but also the people around you. Not to mention that, let's say that there's like the big bad of racism from, I don't know, pick a year in the past where it was very affluent to be that racist. Um, It still is, but like, you know, very socially acceptable. It was like the truth of the world. It was in every, it was in everything that anyone ever said. You take that person and, or group of people and you just eliminate them from earth. The system would have still gone off the same way. Like, we're the ones enforcing it now. At some point, it becomes we're, we're we're all complicit in how we enforce it. Yes, I, I agree. I agree with uh, what you're saying here. Yeah. What would you say is the definition of oppression? 
Oppression? Mm. It's hard, right? Because I think oppression is rooted in miseducation in that the easiest way to oppress people is to narrow down their thinking and have them just try to share the same vision that you might have. Meaning oppression isn't necessarily a bad thing per se in that like when you just subject someone to completely share a unilateral view with you, that's a form of oppression as well. And that could be like a good thing. However, like in in the idea of like, oh, we want world peace. So I'm going to condition people to just want to try to view world peace. Um, I think, I, I don't know if you've watched uh, the most recent Marvel movie, Eternals. You haven't. And uh, okay. Without completely spoiling anything, like, too much, there is a character there who has the ability to control people's minds. Mm-hmm. Spoiler and, alert, I guess, for anyone yeah. who cares. Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, I believe it gets shown a little bit in the trailers, so, you know. But, uh, yeah, so he has this view of kind of utopia. But in order to get people that way, you have to control brain right so you have a greater good idea but you're still oppressing people in a way so i think by doing that it's that that's kind of like how i see how oppression forms and in a more modern context we're seeing it in the form of like media silencing both in international communities and in our own because as much as we like to think the media is free it isn't the media here especially in the united states now is even more so driven by like the capitalist money-making machine and that means that they're trying to generate as much attention as possible to their news articles their sites and that in a way oppresses people because they start thinking just exactly what media completely like gives them and they believe that most people i believe are still in the understanding that media is fair and media doesn't play sides however especially with uh the past election of former president trump as disgusting to say as that is sometimes um it it just shows like the news coverage that they had on them just because it's click worthy like people are conditioned to think a certain way and it's like very very interesting i would say what about you how would you define oppression There's this whole debate within philosophy about what a right is, like the right to do something, um, the right to be able to do something, um, infringing on other people's rights. It's, it's like a whole domain. I actually took mm-hmm. an entire class where, they, where the question was just, what is a right? 
Wow. And then that contrasted with that is the duties that someone has in to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an excellent book um, called The Realm of Rights by, I think it's Judy Thompson, if I remember correctly. And she's a fantastic uh, philosopher um, that like goes like bit by bit on the argument of constructing someone's right. Like where does it come from and how can we even start to understand what it is. Um, in more sort of general terms, I think for me, oppression is taking away someone's right to do what they want to do. Um, but that right itself is contained in don't you know restrict someone else's right to do what they want to do. So it's like sort of the difference between um, you know, you have First Amendment rights but you also can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Mm-hmm. You have the right to drive a car. You can go wherever you want, but you have to put your seatbelt on and you have to obey traffic laws. You know, So it's sort of, I think oppression is when you don't allow other people to live out their life the way that they want to within the constraints of they're also not obstructing your right to live, yeah. out the way, to live life out the way that you want to. It's a delicate dance. I mean, this stuff is really complicated. That's why there's like entire disciplines on the stuff like within academia, right? Like it's not, it's not simple. But I think in simple terms, if, if I'm not messing with your ability to be happy and you're not messing with my ability to be happy, we're not doing anything wrong to each other. And I think mm-hmm. oppression is systematic removal of those rights. And we've seen it, right? Like she talks about it on and on in the book, like codified... Um, variations of taking away people's right to do basic things like have a family not be called property or you know have a right to education i mean right now the reason why we call it oppression or systemic racism is because the systems in place have caused consequences yes but also like i think i was reading um oh boy i think it was the state of it was after the charleston shooting Okay. I think it was the Charleston shooting. Well, I'm getting my mass shootings mixed up. Happens to everyone in America. Um, it was after the the Charleston shooting, I was reading this really fascinating, it was an examination of the African-American community from 2000 to 2015. It was a report that the county had put out on the state of, the, basically the state of the African-American population and the community there. And in there, the thing that like, I don't even know if I finished it, but one of the things that hit me so hard was that you have to take an average of three buses to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables in the average majority African-American community. Like we're talking about super basic things. So yeah, that would be my answer to your question. I I would call it um, codified and legal versions of taking away people's basic right, you know, the right to not be arrested without just cause, you know, things yeah. like that that are constantly, consistently, and systematically removed from multiple groups of people. I think mm-hmm. that's okay. But uh, by the way, to our audience, uh, the time of recording this, there, and, and just in the subject of shootings, there is sadly one that happened just a few hours ago out in uh michigan about a, a high school where uh 
God. Yeah, live reactions. But um, yeah. So um, that again, I, to me, that that shows like kind of like the prevalence of these kind of things, and I think in relation to this talk of oppression, um, I think we can kind of talk about one of the ways, another way that has been a form of oppression as well for like many marginalized communities and like, uh, like people of color here in the United States specifically is just the idea that they are, not allowed to the the same rights in terms of like weaponry against like you know their oppressors and that that's been pretty hot form of debate for a long time because many people see that like if their oppressors are allowed to have guns at least and a land that is supposedly free, then they themselves should be able to protect themselves as well. And um, one of the, for me, one of the best uh, examples that I saw of just how blatantly, like, how blatantly people have prejudices over people of color with weapons was a, this Jordan Klepper segment. And for those of you that don't know, Jordan Klepper was working for Comedy Central, or I believe he still is. But um, in one of his segments, him and um, one of his uh, like other reporters decided to cover, I believe it was the state of Texas and two uh, pro-gun rights uh, groups there. One was, you know, a bunch of Caucasian men with their rifles out trying to promote uh, open carry laws and things like that, walking around in a parade. And they were passing out, I believe, like flyers and everything. And other than that open carry kind of policy that they're trying to have or like and like get people to kind of buy into they didn't really offer anything else. And you see these guys just with their rifles walking around and like drunk leppers over there covering the whole thing. No cops coming at them for having their weaponry out. Whereas um, his other reporter was covering a kind of demonstration that uh, these, um, these people were doing about, uh, again, um open carry i believe but they are people in the black community uh who give back to their community and have a positive impact on their community and they're just there i believe like also trying to show that like you know there is a way of safety in approaching that kind of stuff and just for their protest which was filed like properly and everything they have cops encircling them the whole time. They're not necessarily doing anything wrong either. And yeah, they're actually more, I, I think, legally compliant than the other group because they actually were like filing proper like permissions and stuff. 
Yeah, I think I I remember watching this. It was with um, there was there was a a, a guy, another um, sort of com actor comedian that he like interacts with, right? I, th I I can remember him. I think he was actually in Madam Secretary as a side character, um, and I recognized his face while I was watching the video. Yeah, and I remember the the um, group, the the black um, the the black group that were carrying guns. Mm -hmm. um, they're part of their sort of um, mission is normalizing the African-American community having guns. Mm -hmm. And so it was like a direct contrast with the, with the other group, which had no permits, yeah. just the actual protest. And then it was the, um, the group that was following the rules that got, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, um, while you were talking, I was trying to pull up um, sort of a tangentially related conversation mm -hmm. about guns because when we were doing the prep for this episode to the viewers of a look behind the curtain guys on how we put the <laughs> show is um we were talking about kyle rittenhouse yes and because the verdict had just come out when we were doing the prep and now we're doing the recording and one of the things that um had had me focus on or the thing that I was focusing on in my head was domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And it's also the thing that Jon Stewart focused on in his recent, um, the problem with Jon Stewart episode. And he gets into, well, who are we trying to protect here? There was also that um, mm -hmm. really excellent uh, New York Times opinion article. I think, I don't know if Cleveland, you sent it to me or I sent it to you but it was about how the existence of the weapon mm -hmm. was used as a defense in the trial. Mm -hmm. like, like the reason why he felt threatened was because there was a gun. Mm -hmm. The gun was brought there by him. So, so the gun was what brought the danger and was the defense for killing the two individuals that he killed, <laughs> right? And then, so it's like, okay, well, who who's who, who's on the other side of the equation if we're talking about guns existing and we're it's the good guy with the gun narrative right well what's happening to just regular people that happen to exist around a gun so according to um american progress uh what was this i was just pulling it up um in fact one study found that in domestic violence situations the risk of death is five times greater when a gun is a separate report found that there's a 31% increase in the chance of an additional person being murdered with a gun during domestic violence scenarios compared with stranger to stranger violence. So not only are guns being used to heighten situations, when they exist, someone gets hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like, it's... It, it's hard to speak too much about it just because like I think it's a tired topic that many like don't want to keep talking about but I think it, it's pretty accurate in that like we're just as a society we're too weaponized as well or like you know yes sometimes it is good to have weapons against the oppressor but currently yeah no in the way that we're looking at things is we're not allowed to like in reality and even so like we shouldn't have to be like 
that that's one of the biggest things. And I want to go back real quick to this, to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and everything, right? Because very hot form of a discussion between people. So if someone were to actually pay attention to this trial in a vacuum, it actually is a showing of the justice system prevailing in that in the vacuum within the trial, the arguments made in that trial, unfortunately, the prosecution created a very weak argument against their defendant. Hence, the ruling based on what was being argued about in the courtroom was fair. Now, does that mean that the whole trial itself, like, in the social context of things, fair? No. Of course it's not. Because, again, it also goes back to this idea of oppression and, like, how if you're white, you are allowed to be the good guy with a gun. And, like, that's glorified in that, oh, yes, like, I was able to defend myself. Whereas if we look at the other comparisons that people draw it to, people of color have been... That their their right to a fair trial has been extinguished by mainly police officers. One of the one of the biggest comparisons here was that of Tamir Rice, who is very young child playing with a toy gun who was shot. That was a toy gun in a state where he was where where it's allowed, right? Like it was an open carry state, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, again, it it's this form of oppression that people... It, it's the same way the propaganda works. Mm-hmm. You spin the argument to work for your side no matter what. For many people who are in power, weapons are there for their protection. Mm-hmm. Them. Whereas if it's in the hands of people that they want to continue oppressing, the weapon is dangerous and the weapon shouldn't have been there no matter what. And I think like that's one of the, one of the biggest things when it comes to American society and a way to like reframe their thinking in that, there's this thing that is being used as an argument for both sides. Why not try to remove it, right? Take it out of the equation and then we can see how things go again. Like, because in reality, our military spending is already egregious. <laughs> if we are spending that much taxpayer money, that stuff why do we ourselves need to be protected when we have yeah like there's a whole branch of the government that supposedly protecting our land you know where that comes from that comes from the narrative that the threat is coming from inside the, the the calls coming from inside the house, you know, like that's mm-hmm. the that's the that's the horror movie trope, right? Like yeah. the what we're 
constantly asked to believe and occasionally when I have enough patience that I can summon from the world I will watch Fox News because I need to like understand what it is that they're talking about mm-hmm. and I clicked on a video yesterday and it was a terrible decision so it starts out like it was something about the elite only the elite of the elite speak this way I think is was the title for the segment or the title for the video on YouTube mm-hmm it was this attack on billionaires not wanting to give their kids their wealth. Like they don't want to pass it. I mean, not all of them, obviously, just some of yeah. us that are saying this. And it's a fat panel of five people spending, you know, American airwaves and millions of dollars of, of taxpayer funded um, airwave time to tell me that only the elite talk about not passing their billions of dollars onto their children. I'm like, hang on. I didn't bring this up for discussion. You did. Mm-hmm. You brought up talking about billionaires passing on their wealth. And now you're shitting on billionaires passing. Like, wait, what is this? Who, who thought this was like something that needs to be talked about? I don't care. Like, I mean, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really frustrating. How did I get here? Because uh, I was talking about trying to understand um, the trope that they want us to believe. And yeah. when I say they, I mean the, the adult-minded extremes of you know people trying to tell me that the, my country's out to get me. Mm-hmm. The reason that that works is because every time they do that, membership <laughs> in the NRA goes up and the you know gun sales go up i saw uh, i was was driving this morning and there was a gun exposition Mm. (laughs) happening in the city right over there like the more they hype this up the more they get to prey on you Mm -hmm. um the numbers of the people that enlist in the military i'm sure goes up like everything's correlated with becoming more and more subservient like that's the part that fascinates me like if you're all about individualism and if you're all about lessening government's control on you then you should have you should want no part to do with any of this like you shouldn't want the government telling you the rules that you're supposed to follow like the the mental gymnastics it's like every time they end up in in a conversation about well you know the government needs to get its hands out of you know insert anything like guns wallets like whatever like lower taxes every time we were in that argument they actually end up with more rules by the end of the conversation than they do otherwise i felt like i went in a circle there but no it's okay it to me it brought out something that's really funny because that idea of less government you know someone could say it's it's more anarchist you know kind Mm -hmm. of but the actual practice that they want to do in reality is that they want the current government to have less power in order to instill their own kind of rules which make it more more like a fascist nation and you know i think I think nowadays bicamerality is just showing how weak it is in reality because now more than ever, our government keeps going into standstills or the more quote-unquote progressive side 
because they have somewhat greater compassion have chosen to be a bit more complacent with their their rulemaking or possibly even just outright too compromising sometimes, right? And I don't want to go too much into that. I want to kind of go back to to our discussion of uh, Wilkerson's cast and everything. But in relation to that compassion thing and going back to that tiered building that we were kind of discussing in the beginning about like how, you know, the people at the top make sure that their tenants at the very bottom do not have any idea really on how to climb, even though they dangle that dream in front of them of like one day you can make it up here. So, and again, I also want to go back again to the oppression thing in that as compassion is shrunk, people are more willing, like they're more unknowingly getting oppressed because they start to lose their own compassion for themselves. And I think, yeah, like the competition that gets bred within people in the quote-unquote same caste system, right, is very apparent in that some people, yeah, they will just downright shoot you down if you are in any way, shape, or form trying to move up. Like, um, there was this, uh, it wasn't in the United States, but it was a skit on YouTube that I watched of, uh, these two gentlemen that were from somewhere in the UK and, you know, they grew up in, in a not so good area over there. However, one of them stayed in their hometown while the other kind of moved up and, one of their points of discussion there was that, you know, the guy who stayed in the hometown was talking with his very good friend who was now a businessman and said, why are you talking like that? You're not around them, his co-workers, white people. <laughs> well, why are you talking like that? It's not you. However, what some people fail to realize is that like that image that most people have it's just that in the past now. It's not necessarily who they are at the time either. So for his friend, like he that was who he was now. He was a businessman. And he tries to conduct himself still, even in the social situation, to be that. Because it's not being inauthentic to yourself. It's that it's showing a form of growth. And so... So far, many people also get too stuck in that idea of, like, my culture is better than your culture as well, where even some people of color believe, you know, like, I, I'm i not, I'm woke in thinking this way. But in reality, it's not because, like, you're just excluding people that you should be working with, you know. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you're touching on is, like, really interesting because the part of what she talks about is the requirement of people 
lower down, basically the the non-majority caste or the non-dominant caste has to constantly figure out how to fit in if they're going to climb and sort of take away things of things and features of themselves that won't be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, reminds me of a character from Insecure, um, the TV show. Uh, one of the characters is a lawyer and she works in a very high fly, you know, corporate situation. And she um, has to like, is forced to rein herself in, in order to be a black woman at work. And yeah, like it, I think to some extent, like that's just who he was. I mean, I haven't seen the video, but that's just who he was at that time, right? In one way, but in another way, it's who he was forced to become as a result of the system that he wanted to to climb. And, and there was nothing wrong with him wanting to climb it. It's that he had to. And so I think there's both sides to that. There's like fairness mm-hmm. in the question of like, well, what happened to you? But then the other side of it is that he he was forced to in order to mm-hmm. um, assimilate. I wanted to read um, one of the, a quote from Cast actually, um, to sort of, um, move on to the to a couple of things that we wanted to talk about so specifically about oppression and and I think this has a lot this rings really true for the Kyle Rittenhouse trial which obviously happened well after the book was published um, so this is in chapter 12 she says it is to say that one of the most disturbing aspects of a caste system and of the unequal justice it produces is that it makes for a less safe society allowing the guilty to shift blame and often to go free. A caste system gives us a false comfort, makes us feel that the world is in order, that we automatically know the good guys from the bad guys. I feel like that's the whole trial in a nutshell, right? Like they they just, they, they made it seem like the verdict had already been reached before they started arguing. Mm-hmm. And then used the verdict as a confirmation of reality, which is what it was for most people. Yeah. Most people being people in the dominant caste, as she calls it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the good form of transition over here. And mm-hmm. um, another thing that she does touch upon really well in this whole, um, this whole part is the idea of scapegoating mm-hmm. and placing blame. And usually this is how, yeah, that kind of like fear mongering begins is that people in the dominant caste like to use people in the lower caste as a scapegoat for their problems. And Wilkerson talks about it in, of course, the very famous example of Nazi Germany scapegoating their Jewish population and making them the the reason world war one even started basically and you know i think a good question to have now is like do you believe scapegoating's kind of the idea of a scapegoat has changed because of the internet i would say well I think it goes both ways as like most things in sort of shifts in civilization have, have, I mean, there's good things about it and some real drawbacks. Um, I'll start with maybe the good things. Mm-hmm. 
think it's easier to resist it. Like there's, at least there are tools to resist scapegoating, right? Like the idea of um, someone in an immigrant community that lives, let's say, in a very like white population, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking about an immigrant person of color mm -hmm. that lives in a white dominant community is not gonna know anything outside of that if they had grown up like before like you know 1990s they're mm -hmm. not gonna be able to connect with other communities online they're not gonna be able to share their grief they're not gonna be able to find um you know pockets of understanding mm -hmm. nowadays i think that not just representation in media and entertainment but you can literally go on reddit and find like your specific community that you um feel alienated from mm -hmm. uh, and you can ask for support, there's resources out there to make you feel not as alone. Mm -hmm. So I think the scapegoating, especially for the communities that are that are themselves scapegoated, I think it's easier for them because the internet is a tool now, it's a democratized tool now to be able to fight against oppression. Like you can come mm -hmm. to however small of a group you may be, um, you can, you can make a community and there are people out there that will listen and that want to listen. Actually, they'll, they'll put time and money and investment into, into making it work. Mm -hmm. That's the good side of it. I think the bad side of it is that it's more insidious now, the scapegoating itself. Like it can happen on an individual level. It can happen to children when they're in school. Like the, the attacks that you can receive are just as pervasive as the community that you might find using the internet. Like yeah. better. But I think in some ways it's also much shittier. What about you? What do you think? Uh, I definitely think like it's changed to in that similar viewpoints that you have. And however, like my example of like is more towards that negative side, right? In that if we look at not even talking about like based on people of color or like culture, but the idea of being an in oh god yeah yeah so incels they believe they're a marginalized group of people mm -hmm. because quote-unquote they're involuntarily celibate no one wants to be with them physically and so you know they find a way to yeah they scapegoat their problems which most of the time are strictly because their personalities just need to be worked on like they're very unappealing personalities most of the time and you can see that within the community itself but yeah they they scapegoat women as their problem and in a way like the internet has made it much easier for people with this kind of mindset to congregate and have their echo chamber be even larger and so you know in the idea you know, I'm not going to compare, well, I kind of am going to compare insultum to, like, Nazi Germany, in that the way that, like, the fascists of Germany were able to scapegoat the, the their Jewish population was through a slow and calculated takeover of the government. But the way to do that, it took like charismatic person to kind of rise to power which took years to develop and stuff whereas with the internet it's just become such a faster and more efficient process to kind of create these kind of problems 
Yeah, I think what you're talking about is sort of like shame is harder to conjure up now in insular communities on the internet, right? Like if we're talking about an insult community, the deeper, like I remember Reddit banned them or like oh, yeah. pulled them off of Reddit, right? Like on from one of the communities, but now they're in like 4chan or whatever other sort of um, deeper into the internet, but they're still there. Mm -hmm. They have a community where they can tell each other how they think and they can uh, bond. I would not think that is the case in the early 1900s. Like there aren't incel communities, you know, around the world connecting and knowing what they're thinking yep. and realizing there's millions of people that think like me and that hate women and think that, yep. you know, women are the reason why my entire life is terrible. Yep. And I think that the thing that you talked about with the, the parallel with Nazi Germany, what you're talking about is the tactics that they're using and the, the method of the argumentation is similar. Is that what you're saying? No, it's more so just the speed itself of like, yeah, the that that proliferation of their idea in that like as for a whole country at the time to be able to think the way they did, it took years of like propaganda words against them. Whereas no, in the internet, if we look at the way insults are, is what you said in that they instantly find out that there are millions of people that can validate their thinking. So overnight, a person's viewpoint can change where one day they're kind of like, you know, oh man, women are the problem. But then society tells me that that's not the case. And then they've stumble upon this community. Now, all of a sudden, and they see there's like even just 200 people agreeing with you on like a post that you make makes you feel validated already and then the next day your whole thinking has now shifted that like no i'm correct in what i in what i see in that the way the internet has made it so that this form of like the idea of just like being able to scapegoat people and kind of have your ideas how no matter how negative they are just be validated because of every pocket community that exists, it makes it so much more harder to get to pull people out of like their thinking of like this way, you know? And most of the time, like the way that you pull people out as well is when you see just how horrid the practices are. Many people at the time again going back because i think germany in world war ii was a good example again of like just people realizing that that wasn't actually the case you know it, it took this whole devastating war to kind of see how horrid it was to lay blame on these people like some people truly felt remorseful about even having like non-compliant or not even like on action against like the nazis at the time whereas today because of the internet and how practice doesn't necessarily have to come in like you don't necessarily have to see the negative impacts of your choices and actions you you kind of just are able to maintain that mindset no matter what and then by the time that you've actually see it in practice you're too far gone already like you're not able to be rescued anymore so 
I think that that's the point I was trying to make with it. That makes more sense to me. I really like the speed point, and I think um, like it makes it clear to me how much scarier it is. Like we're not trying to equate Nazi Germany with the incels, incel behavior specifically. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're doing. We're talking about the comparison, which she makes herself, right? Like she's comparing Nazi Germany with the Indian caste system, with the treatment of African-Americans in this country. The reason she does that is because she's trying to thread through, which is the point of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to tread, thread through those things because I think there's something to be learned there. And I think that speed thing that you brought up is what I would say is to me the scariest, right? Yes. The idea that someone can have a thought a bad thought, which everyone has, let's say a slippage of morality, and then they go online to explore that. And instead of being, you know, like rebuffed by a parent or some adult that tells you that's probably not what's happening. Here's, you know, all this other information that's out there that you can, that you can access. You're now onto a community that's telling you and validating your, your slippage of morality. And now it then becomes a facet of who you are. And any time that that idea is ever challenged, it's a challenge of who you are as a person, which is a lot harder to remove than just, you know, some opinion that you happen to have, like, you know, a couple of bad thoughts you've had in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of scapegoating, I think another sort of interesting aspect that she talks about is the... Um, is how the scapegoating itself holds society together. Mm -hmm. Um, And she goes into some detail about like the lowest caste being the victim, being portrayed as the victim in entertainment and media is, um, she calls it a a diet of, of inner city crime and poverty so out of proportion to the numbers that they distort perceptions of African-Americans and societal issues as a whole. So, and she goes on, little more than one in five African-Americans, 22% are poor, and they make up just a quarter of poor people in America, so 27%. But a 2017 study at, by Travis Dixon at the University of Illinois found that African-Americans account for 59% of poor people depicted in the news, White families make up two-thirds of America's poor at 67, 66%, but account for only 17% of poor people depicted in the news. Mm. And I think that goes to show that the argument cannot be advanced or the, the argument of this country is out to get you cannot be advanced unless, you know, Black is synonymous with poor, which is, which is something she says in the book. Yeah. And the, I mean, I personally think this whole thing feeds into the capitalist sort of structure of, you know, the top 0.1% of people are making money off of fueling all of these ideas and continuing to fuel them. Yeah, no, like, and in relation to that, again, to me, it also calls back to the idea of propaganda Mm -hmm. and just being able to spin this argument again to work for your side more so than have it work for the others 
and you know the that depiction of like the poverty of people here in the United States is I think pretty widely accepted and like most people will equate it and like have that as their actual reality without actually knowing like the real figures behind like oh no like they actually aren't as poor as they're made out to be but yeah no like again also a form of oppression because it just so it it reinforces this viewpoint for some people that like no this is what you need to be in a way you know like you're not supposed to be anything more than this you are this is your place kind of deal so yeah and i also love that she flips the script at i think actually earlier in part four and she talks about how it's affecting white people or people in the dominant caste and she says um she asked the question you know who are you if there was no one to be better than Mm. right she's she's talking about how if we build identity as a society on this idea that you're better than all the people that live below you if we're using the house and the story and the stories analogy um it's it's extremely, you know, caustic to your mental health if your identity is built on things that are so fragile and also, you know, not based in reality at all. You're not better than anybody else. Like, um, you're just told that in this fragile, messed up system that's been created to put you on the top. And every time someone from the bottom, quote unquote, climbs up to the top, your identity is now threatened. Like who you are is threatened by actions that, you know, by essence should have nothing to do with who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know how else to respond to it. I think, <laughs> it, no, it, it, I say that just because I think like you put the point very similarly to how I see it, you yeah. know? So. Yeah. Do you have, uh, I mean, after that, do you have any other points of discussion that you think we should hit real quick? I just wanted to put a little bat signal out about gerrymandering to anybody that's listening. Um, This is one of these uh, very slow and creepy things that happens in the back of everyone's consciousness or not in anyone's consciousness at all for the most part. We had the census and we had it late because of the pandemic. And the results came in sometime, I think it was earlier this year or at the end of last year, and maps are being drawn and maps are being finalized as we speak in different house legislatures and they are worse. (laughs) Every 10 years, they just get worse. Um, They're more skewed against progressives and against um, Democrats and they're in favor of Republican legislatures, which are the ones that are you know, building them and doing them. Um, I think John Oliver has a really great uh, episode or a video about gerrymandering specifically. He gets into what it is and how it works and sort of what alternatives might be. Um, But it just makes it, I'm bringing it up because it's really important that we vote in the midterms because midterms have terrible turnout. (laughs) And 
because of these gerrymandered maps, it's going to be even more difficult to keep um, or hold on to a Democratic majority. Um, not that that's my party affiliation, but um, to hold on to sanity, if anything else. Go vote, guys. Please. Please do that. Just go instead vote. Of, instead of listening to our podcast, you can. please go vote. Yeah. If you can vote, like if you're of age, please exercise your right to vote. It it matters a whole lot more than what you've been made to think. Yeah. Um, I can't vote yet, and I won't be able to vote until I'm like 29 because I'm an immigrant and I'm still going through a what is now the 16th year, I believe, of my process of immigrating to the United States. So it will go on, and I will keep you updated on this podcast potentially. I'm sure the podcast will end before I become a citizen, because that's how long it will take. <laughs> the wheels of government working as they want it to. <laughs> or not working. <laughs> they want another brown person in America. I said as they wanted to, all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think this was a great discussion. We um, are trying out a sort of more free-form version of the podcast. We hope deeply hope this this means we're going to get more episodes out as opposed to trying to trying to get it perfect but yeah i mean the premise of this whole thing is we want to learn from from all of you we want to learn from what we're actually reading and we want to get better about um who we are not just as participants in a civic society but just as um regular people trying to figure out how to be better Mm -hmm. so Thanks everyone for listening to this week's episode of Here's the Thread. My name is Ala Jolly. And my name is Cleveland Luz. We will be back next time with part five of Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, as well as our thoughts on whatever terrible or wonderful thing human beings decide to do to each other. So stay safe, eat more vegetables, vote in your local elections, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Here's the Thread and follow us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Bye, guys. Thanks, everyone.